Hello, and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast, a celebration of the people that make the festival such a unique celebration of this very special place. I'm Longtown Wigtown fan Peggy Hughes, and on today's episode, we hear an excerpt from Wigtown Wednesdays, starring festival stalwart Robert Twigger on his new book, Walking the Great North Line. We hear from Karis Davies, author of The Redemption of Galen Pike and West, as she tells us more about her hotly anticipated third book, The Mission House, which is due out in August. But first of all, I caught up with Sarah Maitland, Galovidian and author of How to Be Alone and A Book of Silence. Here she is on the phone from home in rural Galloway to tell us about the view where she is. Hello? Hello, Sarah, it's Peggy. Oh, hi, how are you? Great, how are you doing? Um, I, I feel it's so beautiful. I mean, not this morning. This morning's crap. Oh, <laughs> what crap weather-wise? Yeah. Uh. So basically, it has been so beautiful. Oh. <laughs> You've got the sounds of nature nearby, I hope. You've got the sounds of nature, and at the moment, it's just wonderful. Sometime oh, in the last two weeks, you hear the first curlews, the first cuckoos. I had my first cuckoo last week. Oh. It sounds like a good place to be locked down, basically. Yeah. Absolutely fabulous. Good. And it's Good. also partly, I think, to do with rural communities. And I've got yeah. to think through this because on the day we were locked, the over 70s were locked down. I'd only been over 70 for four days. So quite how uh, everybody knew. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I got this little red sort of X sent oh. to me through the post. I can put in the window if I need it. Yeah. So I rang someone in the village and said, that's jolly sweet, but in fact... Um, <laughs> Nobody goes past my house. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know where I live. There's no road, you know, it's up a truck. And she said, well, of course some of you come past your house. We take care of you. So, Sarah, where in the world are you? You're, you're local to Wigtown, that much I know. Well, fairly local to Wigtown. We can't it is local up here, but you probably in large parts of the country wouldn't think it was local at all because it's over 25 miles away. I live on the very, very northern boundary of Dumfries and Galloway in what used to be Wigtonshire. So you're quite rural. I'm quite there. rural. <laughs> I am very rural. I am famously rural. I'll tell you how rural I am. I live, on, I live about the middle of a 13-mile single-track road, because I like it. <laughs> but it's not <laughs> everyone's cup of tea. So tell me, you're, you then, and, and in the books you've written as well, you know, you, some would say you're quite well-equipped for the current scenario. Yes, I'm well-equipped in two ways, three ways. The first is that I have quite a lot of practice. I live here because I chose to live very much alone. I suppose, in a classical sense, some people might call it a hermit, although I'm not really a hermit. Um, but in that sense, it is a house designed for a single person to live alone in, and my nearest neighbour is over a mile away. So in that sense, I went into this with more practice than most people have got. <laughs> and in some ways, my life is much easier. Because it is so rural, we don't have, on the whole, extremely good services, of which the Example would be we don't have any rubbish collection. Okay. Now, you never do have or you currently don't have? We never have. It's not a, a lockdown thing. We don't. If you go to a small rural town or village, you'll probably see a very large bin saying authorised users only. Ah. I'm an authorised user. We have, a, <laughs> we have a big set of bins in the village, which is five miles away. What I think that I would say to people is two things. One is there is no evidence that being socially isolated leads to mental breakdown. What people do not need is that worry. It will for okay. some people, but so would being in an airport. The assumption 
that being on your own will lead to mental health problems is a completely spurious and unnecessary fear. Because I think there'll be a lot of people, won't there, who are on their own now or being isolated that aren't used to it. And they need need some help. And I'm going to have a little rant here because I feel very, very strongly about it. This is partly because of the way we are now bringing up children. A child gets its first mobile on average by the time it's seven. That children are never supposed to be alone. Go to your room remains the most popular parental punishment. They have no practice. If your experience of being alone is that it is a punishment, you're going to be unhappy with it. It's a very, very strange cultural thing because it's very new. I think we've built up terror because we don't get any practice. You know, people say social is natural, but the amount of effort you put into socialising your three-year-old is extraordinary. Don't bite. Don't spit your food out. Don't take your clothes off. Give Granny a kiss, even if you don't like her today. And we know it doesn't come naturally to them. And why aren't we also training them in how to be alone? How would you go about then, Sarah, like for people listening and thinking, oh, that sounds quite quite interesting, actually, I'd like to try that. What 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 could they do to your mind then? They could say to their six, seven-year-old, darling, you've been so good all afternoon, you can go to a room and be by yourself for a bit. If you want to go out for a walk alone, that's fine, but can you let me know where you're going? Instead of saying, you can't go out on your own. <clears throat> We're definitely less good at the art of being bored these days, I think. Yeah, I'm sorry to bang on about this, that most people alive will go through sometime in their life separate from this lockdown in which they are alone. The number of people living alone is increasing and they're going into that with no skills. It really worries me. People are going to be miserable. They're told it will drive them bonkers and they're not given any skills. What would you recommend to someone who's maybe, who finds themselves alone for the first time? What are some tips or strategies that you've you've found out through your books? I think a really important thing to try is to do something that is a little bit difficult. Not very difficult, a little bit difficult. Read a book slightly outside the range of what you normally read. Take up that sewing that you stopped doing when you left school. Mending things. Building your Lego castle. Doing jigsaw puzzles. Those mm-hmm. things that are a little bit hard work, but have a clear end product. You get to the end of the book, you complete the jigsaw puzzle, you finish making mittens so that you have achieved something that has slightly challenged you, but not so much you get depressed. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. That that would be, I'll give you a really good example. And that's my niece has taken up knitting again. She hasn't Mm -hmm. knitted since she was a primary school kid. Hmm. And she said she couldn't at first remember how to do it, but she said now she's learned something really good you can do online. You can revise Mm -hmm. those skills. I want to ask you, Sarah, just about your relationship with Wigtown and the Wigtown Book Festival. I grew up at Kukubri with the awareness of how difficult things were getting for Wigtown mm-hmm. when it lost being county town. So we were very, very excited. We didn't know it was going to be as good as it is, I have to say. <laughs> but there was a general excitement that Wigtown had found something to do with itself. <laughs> and, you know, as a writer, everybody knows it's the nicest festival to go to. It's really important to say people like going to Wigtown. You can tell they like going to Wigtown because actually very successful and not desperate writers come from the most inconvenient places to come to Wigtown. That's its great joy is how integrated it is with the people who live there. Quite unique in that regard. And I think that that's actually the same thing as makes the community that I'm living in here sustainable through a lockdown. I don't know if you even know this, but Galloway has some very odd statistics about it. Very, very low crime and a very, 
very high rate of community involvement, people working for charities, people being willing to stand for village councils. It's almost the highest. So the festival fits in there very well. You know, the volunteer team at the festival (laughs) aren't grumpy people trying to earn money. (laughs) The people who think Wigtown is a fabulous place and is made more fabulous by these visitors. Oh, it makes all the difference. Yeah, it really does. I believe you've, Adrian and team, have commissioned a short story from you as part of this new way of working. Can you say a bit more about it? It's a modern retelling of some old Galloway story. Oh, beautiful. In the middle of Galloway is an enormous wilderness, mostly called the Galloway Forest Park. So we have very few tourists. We have very little ecological damage, relatively speaking. Yeah, dark sky region, of course. Which is why it's a dark sky region. <laughs> now, I'll give you a tiny example because I've been writing about it. There was a, a biting method of fishing called half netting, which is a very particular way of catching fish. Mm-hmm. It is practiced on six estuaries in the whole country nowadays, and all of them are in Galloway. You have this you enormous sort of net, and it has a wooden beam along the top of it, and you carry it out into a tidal estuary where there is a very fast flow of water and very soggy bottom. You carry it to your chest, often chest deep in it, and then you stick it into the ground, but you have to hold on to this handle, and should a stupid salmon swim into it, you have to immediately and quickly slam down your, well, actually slam up your handle right. and capture the salmon in a little poke, as it's called, that you've made for it. So your, your story is going to be full of lots of these brilliant old ways, basically. Yeah, I hope so. Do keep an eye out for Sarah's story on the Wigtown Book Festival website. I had the pleasure of speaking to Karis Davies. I'm lucky enough to have had a sneak peek at her third book, The Mission House. And in this chat, we touch on that, her collection of short stories, The Redemption of Galen Pike, and West, her first novel, which The Guardian called A Masterpiece in Miniature. I wonder if I could kick us off just asking about the first book, the short stories, and specifically then how writing short stories has informed or perhaps led to the writing of these two novels. When I started writing fiction, it was with short stories. I hadn't really read that many short stories when I began to write them myself. But um, I was living in, uh, in America with four small children and discovered the American short story. And I remember reading a short story by Eudora Welty, Death of a Traveling Salesman, and it just completely blew me away. And I thought, this is what I want to do. It was just the explosive intensity of the short story which really attracted me. And then as I started to write my own, I discovered that it just seemed to be such a perfect form for me because I was so interested in the spaces and distances between people and those moments, often albeit fleeting, of connection between them. And the fact that there's so much in a short story that has to be between the lines and unspoken. So the form really seemed to be ideal for what I was writing about. And when I came to write West, I didn't think, oh, now I'm writing a novel at all. It it, it was a very sort of gradual journey, I suppose, in coming towards writing a novel. I wrote West as something fairly short, but I knew fairly early on that it had to be something longer. But it's still, I think all those years of writing short stories where you learn to do things with fewer strokes and where there is this power between the lines. I think all that came into play when I was writing West, even though it did, as I say, need to be a a longer story because it turned out to be quite an epic subject. When did it become apparent that it was a a novel and not a short story or that it needed more room Mm. to breathe? 
Well, it all started with me discovering this little germ of historical fact. I came across it in the preface to the Lewis and Clark diaries that in the early 19th century, people had been coming across these enormous bones in a Kentucky swamp, surmising that maybe the huge creatures that these bones belonged to were still alive somewhere out in the unexplored west beyond the frontier. And this to me, just as a writer, just felt a li- like a little piece of gold that dropped me right into the heads of somebody from another time. So I started to write about this. And there I was then in early 19th century America. And pretty soon it became apparent that this wasn't just the story of one sort of extinction. There was a whole other story of extinction, the extinction of the Native American people as white settlers from Europe began to push west beyond the Mississippi River. So I, I just realised it was it was a much, much bigger story and couldn't be contained in a short story. Is that how it typically begins? You mentioned that little drop of gold, which is a really lovely idea. Is that typically where things generally begin for you as a writer? I don't think there's any typical beginning. I, I kind of wish there was. <laughs> I know every, every single thing I'm starting over all over again. I think actually with West, it was almost the first story I'd ever written where I could actually say for certain this is where it began. With The Mission House, it's been very different. It's been a much more chaotic and slower process. It's taken me a long time to to sort of figure out what exactly was drawing me to this subject and this story. I, I think I read in a, in a piece, uh, an interview somewhere that, that you said that West was pursuing kind of themes of curiosity and reckless hope and stubborn belief, which mm-hmm. explains why I loved it so much, because they're such rich and, and interesting thoughts, really. But I, I just wonder if, if that can be said for West, what can be said for the Mission House? What are the big themes that it's pursuing? I was completely unaware of this as I was writing The Mission House, but now that it's done, I can see certain similarities between my anti-hero in in The Mission House, Hilary Bird, and Cy Bellman in West, in the sense that they both, I think, have these qualities of foolishness and nobility. I'm very attracted to that combination and that that mix of strength and frailty and admirable qualities and less admirable ones. But both men are both searching for some sort of meaning to their lives, some sense of what their place in the world might be. And in both stories, they do come up against a kind of personal reckoning with the world. I was interviewing the um, the Irish writer Kevin Barry last week and he was saying that for him in the setting down to write he had a question that needed an answer. Um, I wonder what the novel's doing for you then. Is it similar? Is it that you're starting from a place of inquiry? That's certainly true and I certainly never know where I'm going or you know how, how things are going to shake out in the end. So you know in the case of Sai, all I knew was that here was this man in early 19th century America who'd felt compelled to go out by himself into the West and look for these enormous creatures to see if they were still there. And really, that's all I knew. And I just knew that he had this sense of needing to figure out his life and what on earth he was doing in the world. That really is all I knew. And I, as I 
sort of almost literally climbed on the horse behind him and uh, <laughs> headed off down the path, leaving behind his 10-year-old daughter and his rather grumpy sister, Julie, mm-hmm. to um, see what happened. And until, you know, his first encounter is with the fur trader, Deborah. And, you know, until that moment when he meets Deborah, I didn't know that he was going to meet Deborah. And I remember, I can still remember writing that sentence, you know, that where he was, sighs sitting on the banks of the Missouri River and Deborah comes up to him and asks him what he's doing there <laughs> and at that point I had to give a you know give a reply. I love that sense of the book having an agency of its own or a life or a mind of its own that you kind of follow follow along behind. You can't force anything and it's why so many stories just fail you know they just never take flight because you you, you pursue them and perhaps you just never find the answer that you're looking for or any answer that seems interesting or important. I wonder, Karis, if I could ask you just about the times we're in mm. uh, briefly. Um, last week, I enjoyed an interview with Sinead Gleeson. She was just talking about that kind of new quiet that's descended upon the world in a, in a funny way. And I, I wondered what that's been like for you, if it's been a productive mm. time or otherwise. The first thing I felt early on was a real sense of, gosh, if I'm going to write anything, it really better be worthwhile. And And there was a sort of brief paralysis I think because I knew I didn't want to write about this present moment or pandemics or anything like that but that's past now I'm writing shorter things I wrote a little essay last week for the Wales Arts Review they asked me to do something talking about life after the the virus so I was writing something about the power of literature and and that was actually very cheering because it made me realize that actually you know with fiction at least even if all options have narrowed, you can do anything with fiction. And I suppose what I know is that eventually the times that I live through do after a period of years, they they sort of seep into my fiction. I mean, the, the, the years during which I wrote West and the Mission House. West, I began before the election of Trump, but I was writing a lot of the book in New York in the run-up to his election. And so thoughts of nativism and fear that the Trump voters had of the way that the world was changing made what I was writing feel very alive, because here I was writing about the white settlers who were the ancestors of these people who now, you know, in the 19th century, they were the winners, and now they feel like the losers. And then with the Mission House, I think in, in some ways, because it's a story about the rise of national, or the background, and to the love story at the centre of the Mission House, is the rise of populist nationalism in India. And I think in some ways, that was a way of thinking about Brexit and the rise of populist nationalism in Europe and other parts of the world. So I know this, what's happening at the moment, I know it will come out in my writing. I think it's just way too early to to know how. Thank you so much to Karis. The Mission House is out in August and believe me when I say you're in for a huge treat. And finally, each Wednesday, the festival is hosting events on Zoom. You can sign up on the website. Last week's guest was Robert Twigger, talking about his new book, Walking the Great North Line, in which the intrepid Twigger walks from Stonehenge to Lindisfarne. In this excerpt from that event, he talks about that tension between an expedition of this kind and all its practicalities and the magic he observes in the world around him. 
the invisible world, which in my mind is a bigger world than just the world of rational thoughts, but you certainly inhabit it more when you're on your own and walking and at night in a strange wood or something like that. So you've got more opportunity to dwell in that sort of invisible realm. But to my mind, they're both part pragmatism and the willingness to accept that life isn't just rational, reasonable and provable by science. I think they go hand in hand because so many mysterious and strange things happen. A few happen in the book. I think if you're observant, I I think what links them together is observation and awareness. So the book, part of it is is i think about increasing awareness and by its nature if you are trying to be very pragmatic you become very aware of what you're doing and if you are interested in exploring the the invisible world you're you're trying to be a bit more aware of the things that are happening in your head and and in the world i started the journey with somebody who was an ornithologist or good at ornithology and he did point out quite a lot of things but there goes a be- <laughs> there's a point beyond which you know, lark when you know uh, of course you could employ the tried and tested um, technique of the nature writers you know i saw x it reminded me of y i saw b it reminded me of z you know so like every creature has its own little tag and memory but that wasn't to be i tried to cut it down and and also when you're shuffling around through the english countryside of course you do see stuff but it isn't necessarily at the time you, you you'd probably end up cheating a bit by putting it into the the memorable bits you're writing about. So I didn't want to create an artifact, a bit like one of the wildlife films where they, you know, deliberately infiltrate creatures from the zoo to, to make it look, look more realistic. I, I didn't want to do that. So when there were significant encounters with wildlife, there's a few, with, I see hares, I see de- deer that seem to be significant to me. Then I talk about them, but I wasn't, it's not a book about, and I didn't want it to be, I thought it'd be boring to read a book, which is just a kind of checklist of all the, amazing animals I saw and and, and quite apart from the fact I mean I could have done it about trees you know I could have just listed every species of tree but apart from the fact that probably I don't know them all and I'd have to keep looking in my guidebook so that that would be phony anyway because I'd be checking the names would other people be that interested and I thought about all the books that I really like and there's a bit of it you want you want the reality but you don't you don't want to be it's a bit like those historical fiction novels where they keep name checking products from the past you know they've gone through a catalogue to make it all realistic that's not in war and peace you know that's the level of detail he's got is about all you need in a historical novel i think i discovered at the end of it that places there is such a thing as a sense of place and it's a small feeling it's not an emotion uh, it could you could call it a higher emotion perhaps but it isn't doesn't isn't characterized by a feeling of emotion, ecstasy, or anything like that. So it's a, it's a, it's an obs- something observable. I had built a, a greater sensitivity to place, and I, you could argue, well, if you walk three hundred and ninety miles, you're going to feel sensitive about arriving in Lindisfarne. But I tested various spots in Lindisfarne, and some I found wanting, and others I didn't. And of course, it could, it is a personal trip. You have to read the book to see whether I am a d- delusional or not. But I, I think. I was training myself to become more aware of place and the effect of places on us. And I think it is important. And I don't think it's an accident that Aborigines have, you know, devoted an awful lot of time to, to their landscapes and creating songs that involve their landscapes. And I don't think it's an accident that so many poems are linked to places. In fact, if you want to, to remain as a poet, write a poem about a place and it'll probably stick in the canon longer than, than poems about yourself. 
one of the things in the book I mentioned is the cost of a lot of the properties I go by. I wanted it actually every house I wanted to, because you can find their price on, on Rightmove. When you walk through farms now, farms are actually really worth a huge amount of money. So the difference when I was a kid and camping, you'd ask a farmer for, for water and so on. And it wouldn't, you weren't trespassing on his patch of gold. You know, you were, it, there was something difficult. Our relationship to the land has changed because land is now our stash of gold. And that is, I think, at the heart of this strange, messed up way we've got of, of living right now. Of course, people are tremendously resilient, and this is just like one lower level, but it's, it's a constant chipping away at our experience of, of, the, of everyday life. And I just think it's wrong to commoditize land. I just do. I just think land should be owned by everyone. <laughs> There's a famous picture by Lee Miller of looking out of a tent, and it's through some ripped mosquito netting. And that desire to even to photograph that view, to, to have a false window and make a window is really strong in us. When you're outdoors all the time, you do develop a strong, I mean, in a way, I think this is about the, the attraction of the cave. You, you're in the cave and there's a window. And in fact, when I was looking at the photographs I took, the only one I've got is of me sitting in the cave looking out. I've got no pictures of the damn cave. Many of these ancient sites that have uh, remained people you know stonehenge the sort of i think look let the, the numbers talk for themselves because people themselves may not have the, the an answer because i don't think we have a language in which we can intelligibly talk about these things so people just are just doing stuff we're at the stage now of just doing stuff so stonehenge is visited by more visitors than any other site in the united kingdom um, apart from the tower of london i think many of these ancient sites i went to people have hung things in the trees they don't have any no, there's no record of any sort of religious, of what kind of religion people were pursuing before the Druids. And the Druids were a Celtic religion. They weren't an ancient British religion or an indigenous religion. So we don't really know what anyone was doing, but we can guess from the shape of the remains, from the few rock engravings, that it's very similar to the shamanic practices in other parts of the world and the, the art that has left, been left behind. It's often how, the only way we know about what people were doing in the far distant past by their art. So these lines still exist and people go on these walks, these long distance walks proliferate. I mean, even some of them are former pilgrimages, St. Cuthbert's Way. Yeah, I mean, long distance walking, visiting ancient sites, the fact people have a cult of nature, often shamanism is connected to being at one alignment with nature. There is definitely a cult of nature. We see it in nature books and people going outside. So, but there isn't a language that we can use to talk about it intelligibly yet. Look at the way people are drawn to these things and to the fact that churches were then built on the site of these ancient mounds. Those churches still exist. When I was making this walk, I found myself piloting towards the church, even if the church was empty, it was not even being used. And it was a sort of great um, relief often to, it would often be the only place open in a village. You know, pub had been closed. It's pouring with rain. Are you going to sit in a church? Well, you'll always be welcome. In fact, in, in a way, I'd been planning to slightly avoid churches because as a kid, I was taken to lots and lots of churches for visited, visits by my father and mother. And um, they'd always been part of holidays as well. So I definitely didn't have any positive associations with visiting churches. But over time, they very often appeared on the line. They have, and they're almost always open. This is the good thing. Even, even a few churches and towns are shut because of thefts, but mostly churches are open. And so initially it was just purely practical. The church had a porch. I could sit there, I could brew a cup of coffee. 
So it started as a purely practical thing. And I was a bit like one of those medieval mendicants begging around the church. Now, that, now of course, you see them in, in A&E and in, in a major hospital. But, you know, in those days, they'd be around the church. So I was a bit like a throwback to that. And then after a time, of course, I'd look around the church. I'd pick up the free lit. You know, you can usually get in a church, put a pound in sometimes. Sometimes I didn't. But it, over time, it becomes somewhere you know you're, you are welcome. And it's to do with that. You don't have to pay anything. It's a transactional society we've, we've, we've created in this world. You know, everything has to have an exchange value. And that's wrong. You know, sometimes you should get something for free or do something for free or just go somewhere. And, and often churches are almost always built in some sense, the center of the place. So you, you will naturally gravitate towards it. So it's there's a, a huge sort of ancient wisdom built on that. They're not just banged up on a floodplain because the land was cheap. And there's a significance to the sighting of church. So all of these are highly significant beyond the, the experiences which you can to some extent pick up. You know, if people have been worshipping in a place for hundreds of years, there is something about that place. And then the history, you can get a history of England by going up churches. Thank you to Robert Twigger. You can buy Walking the Great North Line at wigtownbookfestival.com and at all good independent bookshops. Thanks once again to our other guests, Caris Davies and to Sarah Maitland. Do check out all the exciting things going on in Wigtown at the festival website. Thank you to Bailey Gifford, whose generous support has made this podcast possible. And thank you for joining us. We'll look forward to joining you again next time. But until then, take good care and cheerio for now.